This is Abstract Factory, a podcast. I'm Mark Wunsch. I'm Casey Kolderup. And this is episode three, Community. Hey, Mark. Hey, Casey. <laughs> so um, we were reminiscing earlier over dinner um, about how we came to even know each other. Yeah, it's it's kind of a strange story. We don't we don't like actually know each other. We we met on the internet. Right. Yeah, and and sometimes that's at this point in 2014 you can just say that and people will just be like, "Oh, okay. Yeah, sure." Mm-hmm. Um but recently I've had some real life situations where I've tried to use that as an excuse and people are just like, "Okay, no, wait. You have to actually break down like how this happened." So let's go ahead and do that for each other. Um well, for the two of us together. We ended up in the same chat room. Yes, in IRC, Internet right. Relay Chat. Which is a 35-year-old protocol. Who I, I mm-hmm. don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's for hackers. It's really, really old. Um, and we use old software to access it. Um, I use some new software, too, I guess. Uh, you use old. I use, I use new software. <laughs> I guess that just continues the trend of how elite I am. Um, yeah, uh, so tell me how you ended up in this chat room? Well, at the time, I had just set up a Tumblr account on Tumblr.com, and I was sort of interested in the Tumblr platform. I was interested in blogging and programming. Tumblr had um, an API where you could publish and download posts, um, and I wanted to play around with that. And I was looking for some sort of channel to uh, help me learn the API, discover use cases around the APIs, talk about problems I was having with it. And I knew that other other APIs had sort of support networks on Freenode, on IRC Freenode. So I just sort of guessed at a channel name and ended up in this IRC channel um, with a, a group of people um, including you, I think. Yeah, we're still not clear on the timeline there. I felt like you were there before me, but maybe I, I don't. There were just so many people there that I didn't know when I first joined that yeah. might have been and around the same time. What, one of the people in that chat room happened to be um, Marco Arment, who at the time was still at Tumblr. And, uh, but it wasn't an official Tumblr channel. He just happened to be there because the name was maybe there. And so I, I kind of stuck around. Right. And asked questions about the API to the developer. Um, and now I'm still in that channel. Yeah. Um, okay, now ask me how I ended up there. How did you end up in that IRC channel? Um, I was bored at work. I had a job I didn't really like very much. And it occurred to me that I had a gap in the number of social networks or communities I was involved in online. Uh, and I went fishing for one. And I read Marco's blog, and he mentioned it at some point. And I was like, yeah, I'll give that a shot. I'm on Tumblr. Why not? Um, And so for me, it was really more of just kind of like a social dilettante kind of thing. Um, I guess the thread that brought everyone into that channel was that they, one, used Tumblr, mm -hmm. two, used IRC, Mm -hmm. and three... There were a few people in there who did things like make Tumblr themes. 
and stuff like that. Yeah, a few of you, yeah. But it was not an official support channel by any means. Right, and we actually frequently turned away people rather rudely (laughs) when they came into the channel looking for help. That's true. Um, Well, I mean, we weren't getting paid by Tumblr or anything, so why should we, you know, why should we do their work for them? Yeah. This IRC channel, I don't want to dox it, Mm-hmm. This IRC channel still exists to some extent. This, yes. It's the same group of people. We've For the most part. I don't think most of us still blog on Tumblr anymore. Mm-hmm. But at the time, what drew us together was uh, this notion of a community, that we were a part in some way of the Tumblr community. Although I think Tumblr doesn't really have a single community. It's a tool that... I think communities have used. Right. Um, but for whatever reason, we were all in this channel together because of Tumblr. But now, we don't, we've sort of stuck around as a group, mm-hmm. but it's not because of Tumblr. No, it's because of the people. And at this point, we all know each other and we've created an actual community. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the beginning, we didn't even know who all was in the channel because everyone was kind of a blur, right? Yeah. It was more about the utility provided by the channel, which was entertainment or information or killing time for people who didn't have enough to do at their jobs. <laughs> um, and, you know, that you didn't need to know who was in the channel because you were getting utility out of, you know, something happening in the channel. Mm-hmm. Um but now it's actually a group of people who know and care about each other in a way that when things happen to each other, we're there for each other. And, you know, maybe we're not the best at it. <laughs> like, you know, you know, everybody has to do work on that. But um, there have been moments where people have come through for each other in ways that is really nice to see. Um, and I think it's, it's clear that we really care about each other at this point. Um, and a lot has happened to Tumblr. Mm-hmm. While we've been in this channel, they've had financial issues, they've had all kinds of service issues and downtime that they've gone through, they've been acquired, Mm -hmm. and um, it's hard to really follow that this group of people that came together because of this one tool now are very detached from the tool. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so without just kind of like spending the entire episode doxing all the people that we've spent time with (laughs) online. Um, My longest-running kind of sense of community online is with a group of people that I met when I was 11 on the internet. Um, I I was also through IRC to start with. Uh, They had started as an AOL chat room that I had not been a part of, but by the time they moved to IRC, I was kind of on board. Um, And it was built around a game creation system called ZZT. like Z Z like Z Z T. Yeah, uh, some people call, said it was because it was named after the game Zoo of Zero Tolerance, um, which was not an actual game built on top of ZZT, but it was a piece of shareware that anyone could download. It was a, a DOS executable, mm-hmm. and uh, it came with a few games built in. But then you could also edit world files and create your own games where little smiley faces ran around and talked to people or shot people or you know whatever else you do with games when you're a kid. There was a lot of shooting Barney. It was kind of that era of video games, uh, <laughs> you can imagine. Um, yeah, and uh, a whole community sprang up around it. And ostensibly, the community was built around people helping each other build these games and share the games with each other. We were all like 12, 13 years old. 
Um, but over time, it became clear that it was really just a way for people who had kinds of the same sensibilities, the same things that drew them to this software, give them a place to interact and communicate and be friends with each other. Um, so I made one ZZT game ever over the course of the five, six years that I was part of that community. Some people made tons of them, but it was at some point, you know, it became clear who were the people who were actually making the games and who were the people who were just kind of around because they found people who they had a lot in common with. Um, and I've actually remained friends with people to this day uh, from that community, which is pretty awesome. At some point, it kind of disbanded and largely moved to LiveJournal. And mm -hmm. I, that was kind of how I ended up on LiveJournal for a long time. Um, and at that point, the the tone shifted dramatically, right? Because rather than being on IRC and just kind of sharing quips back and forth all day, the tool encouraged you to tell people about yourself, to say what you were thinking about, say the things that happened to you in your life. And in some ways, I think a lot of us discovered like who the person was behind all the jokes and the inside jokes and the tone and the kind of like artistic sense that people had. You actually got to know like who somebody actually was. Um, and in that, you actually kind of found out who you wanted to associate yourself with. And so the group kind of fractured and splintered in some ways. Um, but eventually, LiveJournal died out for the most part. And some people moved to Twitter. And I don't know that Twitter is necessarily good for maintaining those sorts of relationships and keeping track of what people are doing in real life. But it's a good way to stay in touch with someone kind of a more, you know, limited basis. And as I moved out to the East Coast, I found it was easier to meet those people in real life and spend time with them and become aware of what they were doing and their personal projects and things. And weirdly enough, my friends released a CZT game this past week for the first time in who knows how long. It's called the International Jetpack Conference. Okay. It's available at, uh, is it jetpackconference.biz, I think it is. We'll, um, we'll link it in. Uh, yeah, notes. we'll put it in the show notes. And it's a kind of a really beautiful... Uh, tribute to a time where teenagers could just build something that was kind of funny and kind of weird and is in DOS, <laughs> <laughs> which you can't do anymore. Um, but they did, and I think it's really cool. Yeah, I don't know. So I guess today we want to talk about um, different communities that we've been a part of, um, how the internet has affected those, and really look at not just a history of where we've been on the internet, but what those mean and how the groups of people have shaped or been shaped by the tools that we've interacted with in order to get a way to talk to each other. That's right. Yeah. So the way I got into programming mm -hmm. was by building these things called proggies for AOL, hmm. which were basically like these little visual basic programs okay. that allowed you to basically do malware on AOL. It, it was malware. Like you, you could hmm. punt people offline. You could spam image macros. You, you had phishing macros so that you could try to get people's usernames and passwords. Um, I found that community. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how I began programming. I wanted to learn how to make websites because the web was becoming a thing. Mm -hmm. And I made Monty Python 
fan sites. Nice. So I got into the Monty Python fan site community. Was there a web ring? Were you there was a web ring. Oh, wow. That I was in. Nice. Um, web rings were a, a thing. <laughs> um, and you could f- discover a community by going to a web ring. It's also how I made another website, which was for The Simpsons. And there was The Simpsons website. And in the, this would have been in the 90s. The other thing websites did for each other was make awards. You know, mm-hmm. It's like you would make a yeah. JPEG image of a plaque and say, <laughs> this person wins the Monty Python <laughs> fan website award. Right. And I was, that was how I learned about the internet was by becoming sort of enmeshed in these communities. The other thing is talking about games. I feel like some of the earliest communities I was a part of on the internet were all based around games. I made quake mods, Mm -hmm. Starcraft maps, um, all of those different sort of things built around uh, a game, either to extend it or to build on top of it or to talk about it were some of the really vibrant communities I was a part of. Mm. There's kind of a a cycle, Mm -hmm. I think, with the internet community, which is that it starts off around some kind of... some kind of thing. And maybe that thing is ZZT. Maybe it's Monty Python. Uh, But it starts off around this thing... It adopts a set of tools in order to communicate and grow that community. Something happens where I feel like the community moves moves from tool to tool until it reaches some sort of centralized tool. Hmm. And then that centralized tool falls out of favor, goes out of style, dies, mm-hmm. and then that community is almost left to defend for itself. Uh, I think there's an interesting narrative between some of the things we talked about, about the cloud and centralization and how those decisions impact a community. So in other words, in the early days of the web, you had um, you, you had something like a web ring where the community is formed based on a series of hyperlinks. Mm-hmm. It's completely federated. And um, all the web ring did was link from one thing to another thing in a ring. Mm-hmm. But then as you move to some of these more centralized tools like LiveJournal, mm-hmm. um, you're, you're almost putting your community in the hands of a different set of tools. Yeah, and that's interesting because I think for a while the the trend and the thought has been about you and your data. And the reason not to be on Tumblr is because you're lending your data and your thoughts and the words that you create and the, the things you create to that, that central location. But Tumblr is an inherently social product. And when you think about it, you're also lending all of those connections you have to Tumblr as well. And you're locking yourself in as a community and you're, you're putting the value of your community in the, the features that that tool has, that, pro- that, that, that platform has. 
Um, and it's, it's almost just as bad, if not worse, depending on, you know, where your priorities lie or what the strength of the platform is, whether it's creation versus community. Um, and Tumblr is kind of, I think, halfway in between almost. Um, but yeah, it's like we spend a lot of time worrying about making sure your data is somewhere that you have private and making sure that the things you create are yours and that you own them and control them. But we also create community and we create relationships and in a way by using these things, we're kind of also ruining the ability for those to exist on an ongoing basis too. Mm -hmm. um, and there's something to be said for the fact that an IRC channel can basically for, exist forever. You know, a, a, a network might go down, but it's easy for everyone who knows how to use IRC to switch to a different network, and there will always be more IRC networks. It's not hard to set one up. Yeah. Um, so that's actually <laughs> kind of a weird nerdy thing to lord over yeah you know uh, it's strange because irc usenet those things still still exist mm. but um yeah it, it's it's telling that those things have survived for so long an anecdote i want to give is about how i joined tumblr mm -hmm. i was interested in the ruby programming language and you know, I was sort of learning more about the Ruby community. And the Ruby community had people like Why the Lucky Stiff. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were these blogs called The Projectionist. I think one was called Anarchia. And these blogs were run by Ruby programmers. And they were almost a part of the Ruby community. And why the lucky stiff sort of said, "Oh, this is I'm going to call this tumblogging. This is a tum. This is a Tumblr log." Because why the lucky stiff had a way with names, and he wrote about building some of these different tools with Ruby to enable sort of this short form blogging. And I thought that was really interesting and really cool. A cool, a cool way to blog um and tumblr was basically that as a service mm -hmm. and i signed up for it um, but it's interesting that what led me to tumblr is sort of this loose community built around building a blogging engine in a fun programming language from japan and when these centralized tools emerge out of these sort of decentralized patterns of behavior. They, they generated a lot of interest, but then inevitably they sort of decay. In the case of Tumblr, it was purchased by Yahoo. The future of that company feels uncertain. Mm -hmm. Well, and I mean, we should be clear that there are still plenty of really active communities on Tumblr who mm -hmm. exist to um, do things like share fandom of, you know, over a certain intellectual property. Like, I know the Teen Wolf community is very into Tumblr. Um, and to the point that the, um, the channel that Teen Wolf runs on MTV has actually hired people from that fandom to create animated GIFs of Teen Wolf. Hmm. Um, and they give them the, the data. Uh, my friend was telling me about this recently, my friend Courtney. Um, they give them the episodes before they air so that 
these particular fans can create animated GIFs and put them up in conjunction with the episode airing uh, so that the higher quality animated GIFs are available because it's actually kind of hard to make animated GIFs that work around Tumblr's one megabyte limit. You have to know like, you know, what bit depth to you, color, color depth to use and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and MTV found that the fans were just doing a better job than their professional yeah. image people were. It's um, fascinating how this discussion went, you know, we were talking about <laughs> uh, web awards and, and little, yeah. you know, uh, all these artifacts of the old web um, are now what new communities use to bond over. And right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's, I, I feel like it's maybe reductive to say that, like, like, oh, well, Tumblr just doesn't exist anymore and, like, it's doomed forever. Like, I think that there is a purpose for Tumblr and that purpose has narrowed in some way based on the things that happened and the the people who are interested in engaging with it have a more direct mission that isn't in conflict with the things that happened as a result of the acquisition. Um and, and so, again, you see that these communities have their values and they find a platform that supports it. And when a platform stops supporting it, the community narrows in a way that the people who are still supported by that platform can, can, do, the, can do the work they want to do. Um, there's Jason Scott and the archive team mm-hmm. who do this archival work to basically kind of preserve or freeze dry these communities when... Tools are abandoned when tools die, when GeoCities dies, or some of these other platforms die. The archive team sort of descends in and archives those URLs and scrapes and scrapes and scrapes um, to preserve that, Mm -hmm. whatever it was that was there. Um, There's a really good talk by him. from Webstock 2013, I think, or 2012, um, where he kind of talks about their process and when they decide to get started on these projects and kind of the warning signs they see in these communities and things like that. Um, but it's almost weirdly morbid to think about, like, you end up getting preserved by those actions, and obviously they can't do all, they can't do every community that disappears, but I could go browse the GeoCities archive right now and I have, I've looked at just random Geocities pages just to see like what Geocities was like, you know, before it almost like a Vesuvius sort of like, <laughs> sort of way. Um, but if I chose to keep my data on my personal site, no one's archiving me. Like when I die and then my, I stop paying my domain name, mm-hmm. like I guess it's on, it's on web, web.archive.org, but it's, you'd have to know to search for it. You'd have to know the URL you were looking for. Whereas it like weirdly by being a part of these communities that get like destroyed, you also get immortalized by this work in the process, which is really that's fascinating. That's interesting. And worrying um, to me in a way, like yeah. And and someone actually, someone uh, I forget. I think it might have been our, our friend Paolo was talking recently about how he noticed that the Heaven's Gate website is actually still up and running. Yes, on the original domain. On the original domain, and we were trying to figure out like if they just paid their domain bills, like their hosting and domain name bills for like 40 years in the future, knowing what would happen. Or if like one guy got like left behind to run their web presence and like the webmaster of heaven's gate, just like sitting there, like wondering what happens next. Waiting for the next comment. Casey, 
What is dark social? I'm glad you asked, Mark. Um, yeah, dark social it dates back to um, an Alexis magical piece written for. I'm gonna screw this up. The Atlantic, maybe. I think it was the Atlantic. Um, online, and uh, it's actually really kind of fascinating. The actual original usage of the term is, I find, really kind of. It, I think it's what made it stick with me in my mind, um, which is that so much of the things happening on social media are happening out in the public now. So when I tweet a link to something, um, you know, uh, I say, oh, this is this this CZT game, International Jetpack Conference, Jetpack Conference at Biz, is uh, so awesome. Everyone should go see it. And um, when the makers of that game, who own the, the website that it's on, uh, look at their, you know, refer logs, you know, when you go to a site from their site on the internet, um, that there's a header in the HTTP request that tells you where the person came from. And so you can use Google Analytics or things like that to see where people are coming from to get to your site. And uh, you see Twitter, you see um, actually like blog posts. You can see like the actual blog posts that the, the you know that we were directed from. Um, and so all these this refer data has been really useful to marketing teams to figure out demographics and track usage and track you know fan bases and things. Um, but there's always been this like nagging piece of traffic that just doesn't have a refer. And there's just no way to tell where that traffic is coming from. And it turns out that it's coming from places like instant messaging applications, um, other like proprietary applications like Twitter clients and things like that, um, or uh, you know, even email. Uh, you know, a very common thing is for someone to send a link to a friend in an email. Um, and while you could see nowadays if they're using a webmail client that if they're on Gmail or whatever, um, you can't actually see anything about who that person is or what they're doing. Um, and if they use an actual application for their email, um, you know, you can't even see that at all. So dark social is the social uh, aspect of your viral or word of mouth marketing that's happening in a way that you can't track as a marketer. And it's almost alarming to marketers that this is happening because they have gotten so used to having so much data that they want to know everything about everything that's happening. But as a consumer, it's almost like comforting to think that in the world that exists out on the internet, there are still places you can go that people don't know what, what you're doing or what you're up to, I think. Um, and it, it sounds kind of sinister and it sounds kind of like this cabal that you get to be a part of. Um, but in a way, it's just how we interact. We use email, we use chat clients, we use apps, talk to each other, and dark social just forms these communities people don't know you're a part of necessarily or exactly what the boundaries of that community are, um, but you get to participate in it in a way that feels good. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I did want to mention um, that something interesting happened last night to me, um, which is that I hadn't been online for most of the day. Um, there had been a lot going on at work, and I had been kind of offline since probably late morning. Um, and I, I spent some time with a, a friend of ours um, from the internet. Uh, Naturally. <laughs> whom I know through Twitter. Um, and in the process of meeting with him in real life, he told me about an event that had happened online between a couple friends of our mutual friends of ours, uh, some drama that had occurred. Um, and at that moment, I realized that real life had become the back channel for the internet. <laughs> um, even though I hadn't been online, by the time I got back online, I knew 
what had happened. I knew who was involved. I kind of knew the motivations behind it and had thought about kind of like the history between those two people and what was going on and whether or not it was like going to be a big deal. Um, but like real life was the, the secondary kind of medium for that thing. And it's almost like a reversal of kind of in high school, you know, mm-hmm. hopping online as soon as you get home and talking yeah. to somebody about what had happened at school that day or whatever. Um, yeah, sitting in the bar was my version yeah. of being on AOL Instant Messenger. Real life uh, <laughs> is the darkest social. Oh my god. Uh, yeah, you're, I guess you're right. Uh, and and the, the bar we were in was kind of dark too, so it makes sense. Um, <laughs> I meant that to be funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, one other thing um, that we should discuss is uh, these communities that have been forming around Twitch TV. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not sure how familiar you are with eSports at this point. You know, there was a a day, I don't know what I was doing, but I decided I'm going to turn on Twitch TV. And it just so happened, I guess, to be the, is it the WCS, the World championship starcraft i watched i watched professional starcraft players in some kind of tournament yeah it was a european it was like a european cup yeah they have like seasons even that go on for a little while kind of like sports do yeah it was i actually found it entertaining interesting to watch i enjoyed watching it yeah i don't know why i sort of felt compelled to just sort of turn it on and there are these like highly produced events that happen Mm -hmm. for a lot of the big games now starcraft and league of legends and things and they're all run through the marketing departments of the people who make the games and um you know they have commentators and cool on-screen graphics and they actually build modes into the games now to in enable kind of spectator mode to make the commentators be able to do their jobs more more you know ably um but there's also this kind of extra tier and i I wouldn't expect you know a twitch tv noob to understand these things um but there are the people who play the games every day um and some of them are actually super well known um there are people who play hearthstone for eight hours a day on twitch tv you know, well, well, let me stop you there. Because when I got Diablo 3, I watched a lot of people play Diablo 3 on Twitch TV. There you I, go. I actually, I think, subscribed to Kriparian's channel. Oh, sure. Kri- no Life Kriparian? Yes. <laughs> he's, he's, he's played a, a decent amount of Hearthstone, too. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, so, okay, so you're familiar with Kriparian. That's good. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of these guys who, and even, uh, I shouldn't say guys, because there are some actually fairly prominent female vidcasters streamers i guess is the term okay uh i should know these things by now um yeah and 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 these people um stream as a full-time job they have thousands of people who tune in to watch them every day uh they talk with chat sometimes they type in the chat sometimes they read the chat that comes in and and speak over the, the the webcam to people as they talk to them um they have giveaways, they have events, they'll do a 24-hour stream every once in a while and, you know, just stream for 24 hours straight and go crazy and kind of get, you know, punchy at the end of it. And, you know, I remember um, there was an article I read a while back about someone who was streaming Spelunky and sort of reached this, you know, like, 
this sort of state in Spelunky with had to do with an eggplant. I, yeah. I don't play a lot of Spelunky, so I didn't follow. <laughs> but it was just, yeah, a very vibrant audience for streamers. Can I digress for just, if you'll allow me? Please do. I remember when I was really into Quake and Quake 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, shout casting was a thing. You, oh, you yeah. You have MP3 broadcasts. And mm-hmm. I remember there was um, this one guy who went by the name of Immortal or Captain Immy. Okay. Uh, and he would broadcast and talk about uh, Quake and I think the name was Thresh. Mm-hmm. Does that sound familiar? Sounds kind of familiar. Uh, I think that's the guy who, you know, was a champion Quake yeah. 2 player or whatever at the time. And I, I sort of thought, you know, I, I, was, I re- always remember listening to Captain Immy mm-hmm. on, uh, you know, my MP3 player over this Shoutcast right. I think it was actually real audio, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, and I recently sort of was thinking, like, who is this person? And I found out it was the, the guy who was Captain Immy mm-hmm. when I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, 14, 15? is actually Kevin Pereira, who is oh. the former host of Attack of the Show on G4. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, it's kind of interesting how, here was this community I was a part of several, several years ago, and, you know, how these personalities come out of the ability to broadcast, mm-hmm. and how computers have allowed this amateur broadcast thing yeah. to sort of generate interest and right that was a guy who sort of went from this really niche thing to success yeah i mean that's his career now broadcasting essentially um yeah and and there's there's one guy particularly like who plays magic online on Mm -hmm. twitch um who streamed literally every day uh of 2013 he had a he would stream for at least four hours a day every single day of 2013 usually closer to eight um, and he lived off of donations. He took subscribers and things on Twitch TV. Um, and it turns out that by playing a lot of Magic, you actually get kind of good at it. <laughs> be part of, of finding success at competitive level Magic the Gathering is playing a, a lot of it and just recognizing all the situations that can occur in a given set. Um, and so by playing every day, when he went to a paper tournament in um, this past January, uh, he had a very, what we call a deep run. He ended up... Uh, doing very well, and he was in the top 32 of the tournament. And uh, they actually stream those paper tournaments now as well. What's a paper, what's a paper tournament? Oh, sorry. So rather than playing Magic the Gathering online, you play it with paper cards. Oh. Um, like you, like any nerd would do. You know, yeah, I thought, that's, I thought that's um, the way it was done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think most people, pref- well, a lot of people prefer to play it on paper. Some people play it online, but... Um, it's easier to play online more frequently because you can just play over and over again as long as you have enough money to do it. Um, but whereas paper, there's actually, you have to find a store that sells packs and all this kind of stuff, you know. Um, so the tournament that he was in, um, they were streaming it on Twitch as a more professional kind of event, you know, which is the coast was doing as part of their marketing budget. Um, and they kept featuring him on the stream because they knew that he had a lot of fans. People in the chat were requesting him to be on camera and making sure that he got screen time and everyone was cheering him on. And he said afterwards that he really appreciated kind of, despite not being one of these pro magic players, which is a thing that exists, just trust me. Um, I believe you. Uh, he's had the support of the community behind him, um, not because he has a track record of being one of the best magic players for the past 10 years or you know whatever these, these guys do who are the top tier magic players, um, 
but because he built a community um, through, you know, expressing himself, and he's a pretty positive guy, he's really laid back, he has kind of a, you know, he's built a community of people who are supportive and who are kind for the most part. They rib him and, you know, everyone has fun, but um, ultimately they care about him and they care about the community that he's built. And so his success was the community's success, and that was really cool. It was a really cool thing to see. Um, and I've seen other streamers like Day9, who's a famous StarCraft commentator who streams very frequently on Twitch, and um, a few other people who they, they build what I call, and it's, it's a terrible name because it's totally not true, they build what I call effortlessly positive communities, which is that if you look at Day9, um, he amplifies positivity and he doesn't ignore, but he kind of dampens negativity within his community. Um, and he does it in a way that is encouraging of people being positive without just blocking out people who are being negative. Um, and over time, the people who stay with the community tend to be the positive people. And I don't mean, you know, relentlessly positive or just not be ever being negative for no reason, but he builds a community of people who care about each other and care about him and he cares about them. And it ends up being a small but stable community because of it. Um, and it's obviously lucky that they don't have to face tough issues and they don't have to worry about all kinds of complicated things that can happen in a community that make it, you know, serious issues have to come up or whatever. They're just playing video games and talking about them um, in this tiny micro community that's part of the larger gaming community. But by building that positive community, it creates a safe space for people who might otherwise not have a place to go because the gaming community can be so competitive and so negative and so hateful um, that some of those places are really cool places to be, I think. Yeah, I, I, I kind of I think it's actually really interesting how I think you know, be it with Twitter or with Twitch or with um, shoutcasting that communities kind of form around um, a broadcaster mm -hmm. um, and how that broadcaster can influence that community. I think is is kind of interesting, right? Because then the values are embody within a single person mm -hmm. and if you don't share the values of that person there's frequently no reason to stick around unless you're just so <laughs> relentlessly antagonistic that you think that you should stick around to troll that person or you know for whatever reason but right. by and large you lose interest in the way they just don't respond to that um, and so over time what happens is people who share those values that are embodied by that same single person um, actually stick around and create something that can be enjoyable yeah. The other interesting thing to come out of Twitch is Twitch plays Pokemon. Right. And actually, there were a lot of different communities that were all taking part in that, right? And I think that, um, I mean, maybe you should say what, what Twitch plays Pokemon was. So Twitch plays Pokemon, as I understand it, and I don't know a lot about how Twitch works, mm -hmm. but someone took Pokemon, mm -hmm. like the, ori the original Pokemon mm -hmm. for the Game Boy, and sort of made a mod of it in such a way that community the people who were watching the game being played could enter in commands to run and the game would do it right so in the chat room you would say make the character go up 
or press B, mm-hmm. and the character would do that in the game. Right. Um, and what ended up happening was there were kind of two modes of play. I think one was called like democracy and the other was called anarchy, mm-hmm. something along those lines, where on one mode of gameplay, the democracy, um, it would take a, an aggregate of many people's actions and sort of pick, pick the ones that rose to the top. Mm-hmm. So the community could drive the game sort of in order to actually make the game playable. Mm-hmm. Whereas Anarchy just accepted everybody's actions. Right, so it basically took in the input of every single thing that got sent from the chat and just processed it through the, the signal that got sent to the emulator and just kind of like told the emulator to deal with it. So like however many possible inputs the emulator could take in at a given you know number of seconds or whatever, it would actually pick up those. The rest would be dropped as part of kind of like a lossy signal situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then just chaos reigned, right? Like, Yeah, I remember whenever I would watch the Twitch plays Pokemon, mm-hmm. it was always in anarchy mode. Right. And people voted. Like, yeah. People voted on whether to be an, in, in anarchy mode or right. in democracy mode. And whenever I would watch it, it was always in anarchy mode, which basically just meant the character sort of spinning in circles and opening and closing menus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and opening menus turned out to be kind of like a key part of countering the anarchy strategy because there are people who were trying to desperately win this game and there are people who were kind of counteracting that and trying mm-hmm. to stop people from winning the game. And so the anarchists were always trying to put it in anarchy mode and then just make sure nothing happened or even like to, to hurt the characters in some way. Um, and so the, the people who were trying to accomplish things would try to pause the game as much as possible as long as it was in anarchy mode so that you know the state of the game wasn't changing and items weren't being wasted and Pokemon weren't dying or whatever. Sorry, fainting Pokemon don't die. Yeah, and, and I can tell you that actually every Twitch chat is an IRC channel on a server that exists. Oh, in, interesting. In, is that uh, like an Twitch implementation TV. detail? Yeah, um, but the nice thing is that as long as Twitch chooses to keep those servers accessible to the outside world, um, people can set up IRC bots in those chat rooms pretty easily as opposed to having to figure out how to script mm-hmm. something that interacts with the web browser or whatever. You know, IRC bots have been a known quantity for a really long time, and so it's easy to take existing code and ad- adapt it to, you know, send input to the emulator, apparently, or more commonly, like, uh, create a set of bookmarks that people can access to get information about a game or uh, roll a random number to participate in a contest mm-hmm. or, you know, any number of things that a Twitter bot or an IRC bot might normally do. Um but yeah, then people started doing really weird things like setting up clone channels and taking the input from Twitch Plays Pokemon and playing Tetris with it. Hmm. So you could just throw your IRC bot in the channel also and take those inputs and do something else with it. Yeah. Um, or you... and, and like you said, these are several different communities. Like first right. there's like Pokemon, people who might be interested in Pokemon. Yeah. There's the people who watch and are engaged with Twitch. Right there's sort of this layer of scripters and emulators and people who sort of are interested in like maybe those parts of the mm-hmm. the process. And there are the trolls. And there are trolls. Are there always trolls? Is, is No matter what the community is, it seems like... I think given a community of a certain size, you're bound to get some number of trolls. It happens in real life, too. Yeah. Right? I mean, I've had teammates at work who are pretty aptly described as trolls. Um so yeah, is I, that I mean, Calderup's theorem? 
<laughs> for any given community, there will be trolls. As it approaches a certain size, there will be at least one troll. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and there were people who were interested in the like mythology of Twitch Plays Pokemon, and they were building narratives out of the things that happened within the narrative of the game that was being changed by the fact that it was being played so erratically and trying to create stories around that. And I think that was a big part of kind of Reddit's involvement in it. They had stories and comics and T-shirts and their characters that were created in terms of the nicknames that were given to the Pokemon as a result of whatever was happening at the time (laughs) the Pokemon was caught. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think there's a sense of pride in terms of also just the fact that they completed it. They beat Pokemon the entire game. Like a... an RPG that costs, you know, t- or takes like tens of hours to play, like probably 40, 50 hours to play, they managed to beat it, which is just remarkable. Uh, wow. um, so yeah, that was, it was a big enough deal that there were a lot of different communities participating in it, um, but also kind of an overarching community in some ways. Subscribe to Abstract Factory in iTunes or Stitcher, or visit us on the web at abstractfactory.tv. The music on the show is thanks to our friends Inky and Voober and whoever's playing that sweet house music in the studio next to us. <laughs> Please follow us on Twitter at podcastimpl, I-M-P-L. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>